I am convinced there are huge lessons of the good life that come from small town living. I had the privilege to grow up in Reynolds, Georgia, a small rural town in central Georgia that produced many very successful people in life. When I talk about Reynolds, I certainly do not mean to insinuate that Reynolds was different from other small towns during the time I grew up. Reynolds just happens to be my hometown and a place where I have intimate knowledge. As I've said many times before, I would not take a million dollars for growing up there. I think in a bigger sense, the decline and in many cases the death of small town America is a tragedy in our country. The older I get, the more I see it. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. As in most small rural towns in the 1950s and the 1960s, relationships and friendships ran deep in rentals and went back several generations. I have many lifelong friends where not only our parents were close friends, but our grandparents and great-grandparents were close friends. In each generation, the friends did business with each other, went to church together, went to school together, and visited each other in homes. There was nothing superficial in those relationships. Everyone knew everything that was going on in each other's lives, the good, the bad, the ugly. The bad thing was that everybody knew your business. The good thing was that everybody knew your business. When something bad happened to a person or a family, the entire community rallied around them. When something good happened, the entire community celebrated with them. I am convinced that Reynolds produced as many successful people per capita as any place in the United States. The doctor from Duke University, known as the father of arrhythmia surgery, was a graduate of Reynolds High School. His cardiologist brother had a wing of the Medical Center of Central Georgia named after him. A world-renowned trademark lawyer who represented clients like the Coca-Cola Company, Little League Baseball, and the McElhaney Company, the producer of Tabasco Hot Sauce, came from Reynolds. He registered the Coca-Cola bottle with its contoured shape, as did a famous international banker who lived abroad and came home once a year and bought his mama a new car with each visit. Greg Allman's gastroenterologist who looked after him when he died grew up in Reynolds. A Reynolds dentist's only son became a real estate magnate and one of the wealthiest people in Georgia. His son married a Miss America. A former lieutenant governor of Georgia was from Reynolds and would have been governor if he had not suffered a heart attack during the gubernatorial campaign. The man who gave the commencement address for his class at Duke University was from Reynolds, as was a member of the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame. We also had a basketball player at our very small high school receive 89 scholarship offers to play college basketball. One of the two fatalities who was with John F. Kennedy on PT-109 that fateful night during World War II was from Reynolds. 
At one point, there were 61 active soldiers in World War II who graduated from Reynolds High School, with 21 of them being commissioned officers. I have counted 25 medical doctors who grew up in Reynolds. There's no telling how many lawyers, nurses, pharmacists, pastors, counselors, educators, financial planners, engineers, architects, executives, and successful business persons grew up there. Even the father of Malcolm X was born in Reynolds, as did a civil rights leader and personal friend of Martin Luther King, Jr. Interestingly, the town embraced diversity long before that concept was cool in the Deep South. Early in the 20th century, the entire town embraced a Jewish family who had escaped Poland and spoke only Hebrew. All three of their children graduated from Reynolds High School. The entire family was very successful in the United States, and there is no doubt the citizens of Reynolds' open arms were the springboard for their success. Additionally, in 1952, Reynolds incredibly elected a female mayor. The largest the population ever got was 1,200. I also must mention that the man who has the distinction of being the deadliest serial killer in the history of the United States was born in Reynolds. Although I'd never heard of him until it came out on the news in the last couple of years, I suppose just as the most beautiful people have hidden warts, so do the most amazing towns. Reynolds, however, mostly consisted of salt-of-the-earth people, people who worked hard to provide for their family and worked just as hard to be decent human beings. The people of Reynolds certainly were not stupid or backwards because they lived in a small rural town. One of the first things I noticed when I left Reynolds and moved out of its perfect, in my eyes, bubble was that most people I came in contact with have not experienced what I was so fortunate to experience in my hometown. For starters, it would be next to impossible for someone whose life experience was growing up in a big city to have the deep relationships we had in small towns like Reynolds. In the bigger cities, neighbors move in and out. You meet them, but soon they may be gone. In our town, especially in the 1950s and 60s, the same family may have lived in the same house for over 100 years. When someone in the bigger city grew up, graduated, and moved on with his life, the roots he left were generally not as deep. Most people never left our town in those days. If they did, they came back often. Born in Reynolds in 1954, I grew up at the perfect time long before people started leaving the small towns. When I graduated from high school and left for the University of Georgia, I knew I was coming back to Reynolds to live and make a living. As an adult in business, I was able to nurture the relationships I had when I was a child. My parents' friends became my friends, and my grandparents' friends became my friends. When someone needed me, he or she would call and say, Bruce, I need you to come to the house. It could have been they needed me because someone had died, someone was sick, they needed furniture or carpet, they needed advice about a wayward son or their child's batting helmet did not fit. There was not much superficial about those relationships. There was a lot of transparency and honesty, not necessarily because of the character of the people, 
but simply because there was no choice but to be transparent. Many people I have known in the business world tend to be guarded and somewhat superficial with others. I notice the tendency can also be to spend their energy in an attempt to impress. Most are surely not accustomed to transparency and do not understand the power of it, or at least have not experienced much of the power of those relationships. I believe my experience of growing up in our small rural town with all the close and transparent relationships served me well in my career. Because of my life experience, it was natural for me to care about the people who looked to me for leadership. It was natural for me to ask the question behind the question of people to really understand the heart of the matter. It was natural for me to be transparent with people and even be open about my mistakes and failures. It was natural for me to try to understand what a person really means instead of just listening to what the person says. It was natural for me to be comfortable in my own skin. I can tell you caring works, transparency works, kindness works, understanding works, authenticity works. I understand we can't go back to the way things used to be, but maybe there are lessons to be learned from the way things used to be. Talk about salt-of-the-earth people. Some of my fondest memories in life are the sleepovers when I was a kid at the Montgomery Farm outside of Reynolds in the Crowell community. Stan Montgomery was my childhood friend and classmate. We would roam the woods and investigate whatever we happened to find. I remember even sleeping on top of a wagon full of cotton one night. I also remember a large bell in the yard that would be rung to let everybody know when lunch was ready. Being a city boy, and I use that word loosely, I had the opportunity to experience a way of life that was different and much fun. On most of my weekend visits to Kroll, we would eventually visit Stan's grandparents. Actually, both sets of his grandparents lived in the Kroll community and really just down the road. You talk about a community made up of folks with generational relationships, Kroll was surely one of them. I suppose because my focus was on playing with Stan at their farm and appreciating the fun at the moment, I was older before I really began to appreciate the wonderful way of life of folks like his grandparents, Lonnie and Sally Mae Pierce. But I did see it, and I guess you can say to some degree, I tasted it. I am just not sure you can find salt-of-the-earth people like them in the big city. Sometimes I wish I could, as an adult, go back in time for just one day and sit under the big old pecan tree in the Pierce's yard and have a long chat with them about their simple life. Maybe we could shell some butter beans as we chat. Or maybe I could get Mr. Lonnie to teach me how to peel a peach in one piece without breaking the peel. Or better than that, maybe we could sit around the table as we talk and partake of the feast that was always on that table. And before I was transplanted back to the present, I would have to have a piece of Miss Sally May's fresh Nana pudding that always seemed to be in a bowl big enough to look like it was meant for the school cafeteria. 
and somehow I would have to save room for a bite of her blackberry pie and maybe a couple of bites of her famous strawberry shortcake. I can tell you I would leave very full from the abundance of freshly cooked farm food and over-the-top southern hospitality. I would also leave with much more wisdom than I have today. To give you a little background, Lonnie Pierce was born a few years before the turn of the 20th century. His wife, sweetheart, soulmate, and best friend, Sally Mae, was a few years younger. They produced five incredible children and had a wonderful life together for 60 years. I knew all their children, and I'm quite certain they were among the richest folks I know. The currency deposited in their accounts by their parents that made them so rich had nothing to do with money, although to my knowledge, none of them ever wanted for anything. But the currency consisted of much more important things, such as hard work, honesty, integrity, selflessness, politeness, more hard work, laughter, commitment to God, commitment to the local church, commitment to the community, lovers of the land and soul, more hard work, close-knit family, common sense, humility, and more graciousness than you could shake a stick at. They were simply made out of special fabric. Mr. Lonnie never got sick, or maybe he just refused to get sick. If he was feeling bad, he would take a dose of mineral oil and keep going. He worked from early morning to sundown. One of the greatest compliments paid to him was from one of his former farmhands who said, Mr. Lonnie was the hardest working white man I ever knew. But in spite of the relentless hard work, if you caught his eye, this man who did not have a curse word in his vocabulary will raise his sweat-stained straw hat to you. The children remember the special treatment for their feet when they were cut from playing barefooted. Their mom would wash their feet in kerosene. The pain would increase, but the healing would begin. They also remember the remedy for a dog getting bit by a rattlesnake. Take a tablespoon of cracked alum and mix it with two egg yellows and pour it down the dog's throat. Both treatments work very well. Thank you. Sally Mae not only taught her girls to cook, but also to sew and fish. Chicken feed sacks made perfect dresses. And just because it started to rain didn't mean it was time to stop fishing. They grew whopper watermelons, the best tasting tomatoes you ever tasted, huge turnip roots, butter beans, squash, and just keep naming. They drank milk from their own cows, ate their own chickens, and ate sausages and bacon from their own hogs. They also shared the fruits of their labor with their neighbors. In fact, Sally Mae was not only quick to share her vegetables, but she was known to delight in delivering butter beans to her neighbors, shelled, washed, and ready to cook. Sally Mae suffered from asthma most all her life. One of the sons remembers leaving school one morning and wondering if his mom would be alive when he got home because of the difficulty she was having breathing. He kneeled by a light pole on that particular morning, facing the east, and prayed that God would make his mama better. As a young boy, he saw a vision in the eastern sky as he bowed to pray that morning. When he got home that afternoon, she was feeling great and was like a new person. He has been a believer ever since. After all the kids were grown and married, 
They decided to pool their money and build their parents an inside bathroom. The children and their spouses came to the house to see the finished product and celebrate the occasion. When one son-in-law and his wife drove up that afternoon, Mr. Lonnie and his three sons were in the backyard cooking fish in a new Coleman cooker using the tailgate of his pickup truck as a table. Mr. Lonnie greeted his son-in-law with this comment, You know, Billum, we raised five wonderful children in this house, and we're proud of each one. We cooked inside and went to the outhouse outside, and now here I am cooking outside, and now we go to the toilet inside. Things sure do change, don't they? Things sure do change. But Lonnie and Sally Mae Pierce and their family did just fine before they did. Life in our little town revolved around the church. The two main churches in town were on the same block. It was pretty simple. There was a Reynolds Baptist Church and the Reynolds Methodist Church. Most everybody in town attended one of those churches. I grew up in a Methodist church. My mom had her kids there every Sunday morning. We even joined the real faithful on Sunday night. We also joined the real, real faithful on Wednesday nights. When they had church, we were there. It was as simple as that. In the Methodist church, they swapped preachers out at least every four years. Sometimes if the offerings were down and the preaching was boring, a preacher might be out of there in two years. The first preacher I remember was Charles Hillis. He was not only a preacher, but he was also a magician and a very good one at that. He put on shows frequently at events around town when he was not preaching. He came to Reynolds in the late 50s as a young man with a young family. I'm not sure if his flock in Reynolds had anything to do with his decision, but after he did his time at the Reynolds Church, he left the ministry and became a medical doctor. It was Virgil Culpepper's lot to follow the very popular Charles Hillis. Brother Culpepper was older than young Hillis, and he had big shoes to fill to follow Brother Hillis. How do you follow a magician as pastor of a Methodist church, for goodness sakes? He and his family were the last to live in the old Methodist parsonage, which we later turned into the funeral home, and the first to live in the new parsonage. Walker Whaley took over after Brother Culpepper. Brother Whaley was the first preacher I'd ever known to smoke cigars. He even smoked them in the office at the church. Brother Whaley had a son who lived in New Jersey who was an FBI agent. His son would later move back to Dublin, Georgia, and write a few redneck books. His name was Bo Whaley. I shared the stage with him a few times at different speaking events over the years, and we discussed the years his dad lived in Reynolds. Tegler Greer came along after that. He was a preacher in charge during my very important teenage years. Father Greer, as we called him, served a complete four-year term and maybe even stayed over an extra year or two. There is no doubt the congregation, the church coffers, and the population of heaven increased during his tenure. Bernard Henry came next. Again, he had a difficult time following the very popular Tegler Greer. Daddy made a huge mistake during Reverend Henry's first week in town at the golf course. Daddy had invited the new preacher out to play golf on Thursday afternoon, my dad's regular golf day, not knowing that Reverend Henry had never played golf in his life. 
Of course, Daddy paid for the Reverend Henry's golf and then had to go out and take several brutal hours to get through nine holes. The real challenge came the next Thursday and the next and the next. Reverend Henry joined Daddy every Thursday to play golf, and every time he would sign up and tell the golf course manager, Ed will take care of the bill. Daddy never told me, but I always wondered if Daddy, who was Ed, had something to do with Reverend Henry's short tenure in rentals. Daddy and his good friend Roy Jones took Brother Henry on a dove shoot one afternoon. Like the golfing, they had no idea he had never shot a gun. The three of them drove up to the dove field, and before Daddy and Roy could get out of the car, they were jolted when they heard Reverend Henry's shotgun go off. They thought he had shot himself. They jumped out of the car expecting the worst and couldn't believe Brother Henry's response. I was just testing the gun to be sure it worked. Brother Henry's sermons must have been pretty boring for a high school student. I remember my mom coming out of the choir with a choir robe on right in the middle of Sunday morning sermon, grabbing me by the arm and taking me down to the front row in front of God and everybody to sit by myself. I don't think Brother Henry missed a beat. He kept right on preaching. Mama made a spectacle out of me because she saw me laughing. Alan Watley was sitting on the pew in front of me, and during the last song before the morning sermon, I placed a golf tee sharp point up in a perfect spot on the pew while Alan was standing. When Alan sat down, he jumped right back up and yelled at the top of his lungs, golf tee snugly in place. I don't think Mama ever knew why Alan hollered so loud. I got in trouble for laughing, and my goodness, I laughed that day. I got in big trouble during the spring revival meeting during Brother Henry's tenure. Mama was feeding the preacher and his wife, the revival preacher and his wife, and the song leader and his wife. She had the formal dining room fixed perfectly for the dinner. I put a whoopee cushion under the seat cushion in the chair where the visiting preacher would sit. All the honored guests gathered around the table and stood as Brother Henry said the prayer. They all sat down at one time. The noise of the whoopee cushion could be heard all over the house. Nobody made a single comment about the apparent flatulence of the visiting preacher. Mama had a lot to say about it after they left. I got an old-fashioned behind whooping over the whoopee cushion incident. Actually, my grown brother-in-law, Joe, who happened to be a lawyer and later became a judge of the Superior Court, helped me set it up, but I was the fall guy. After Bernard Henry, Ramus Freeman came on the scene. I'm not sure how long he was in rentals, but I wasn't around during those years. I had gone to the University of Georgia and lost my salvation by then. I do remember the church had a major falling out after he left. Some wanted him to stay, others wanted him gone, and people who had been friends all their lives had a difference of opinion on the matter, and feelings were hurt. But that didn't last long. Reverend Allen Johnson came to town, and he was the peacemaker. Everyone loved Brother Johnson, and he brought the flock together again. He also had a great sense of humor. I remember sitting in church next to Daddy one Sunday morning. It was plainly written in the church bulletin that the title of Brother Johnson's sermon would be, What Time Is It? Everybody in the congregation saw that but Daddy. He didn't notice because he spent the entire time writing figures on the bulletin. It was obvious to me that he was not paying one bit of attention as to what was going on in church. I'm not sure if he was working on a deal or trying to figure out how to pay a bill, but he was doing some serious figuring. 
Finally, the time came for the sermon to begin. Brother Johnson stepped up to the pulpit and began his sermon with these words. What time is it? All of a sudden, Daddy looked at his watch and blurted out loud for everyone to hear. It's 25 minutes till 12. Everybody in the church started laughing. I didn't think Brother Johnson would ever be able to gain his composure to begin his sermon. Lowry Brantley and his beautiful, pregnant, and talented wife, Diane, came next. She was not only the perfect preacher's wife, but she also was an organist and pianist. Lowry quickly got immersed in the community, and he served a term as president of the Qantas Club. He was another peacemaker, and you know he and his family were well-loved because he lasted four years, and the congregation was very sad when he left. Steve Webb followed Brother Lowry in 1984. Steve was a young man, and the Reynolds Methodists were happy to get another young and up-and-comer preacher to the pulpit. He came to town with a lot of energy, and the crowds got bigger, and I'm sure the coffers got larger. He stayed at least a four-year term and could have stayed for another term, but he was a preacher on the rise. There were bigger, better-paying churches waiting on him. He made a big impact in Reynolds, but he did have a glitch or two during his tenure. We had a funeral planned one cold winter day at Hillcrest Cemetery. The deceased had passed away in North Georgia and he was being buried in Reynolds on the lot with his wife's family. Neither he nor his wife had ever lived in Reynolds. Since the deceased was a Methodist, the family asked me to ask the Methodist preacher in town to conduct the funeral service. Brother Webb came over to the funeral home the night before the funeral and met with the family. Since he knew none of the family, Brother Webb took meticulous notes doing his conference with the family so he could do the funeral justice. He got everything correct except the last name of the deceased. At the service the next day, Brother Webb started talking about Mr. Smith and the Smith family. There wasn't a Smith in the crowd. I gave him a few minutes hoping he just got the name mixed up at the beginning, but he continued to talk about Mr. Smith. I had to walk up to the podium and interrupt the service. I whispered in his ear, his name is White. It was at least 45 seconds before Brother Webb said another word, but somehow he regrouped and finished. I also remember the day that Mama called me one Monday morning and asked me to come down to her house as soon as possible. I could tell she was upset, and I was concerned, so I dropped what I was doing and took off to their house. I was surprised when I got there and saw Steve Webb's car in the driveway. He and Mama were in a serious conversation. Brother Webb began to tell me about the church service the day before. He said he had preached a stem winder of a sermon. After he finished preaching, he gave the invitation. Daddy immediately got up out of his seat and walked down front and told the preacher he had something to say. I think Brother Webb thought that Daddy was about to confess a serious sin, so he gave him the floor. Daddy turned to the congregation and announced, I want to remind everyone that we're having a bike-a-thon next Saturday in the park and he began to give the details of the scheduled event. Brother Webb said Daddy ruined the entire service. I sure hope nobody missed heaven because of Daddy's untimely announcement. In fact, if anybody in Reynolds missed heaven, it wasn't the fault of the South Georgia Conference of the United Methodist Church. They sent fresh preachers in every few years. Some lasted four years, some lasted only two years. But my memories of the preachers of the Reynolds United Methodist Church will last the rest of my life.
besides church life, the other important thing going on in our town was at the schoolhouse. Because of the incredible schools, Reynolds produced more than a few incredible people. Most give much of the credit to an educator by the name of Eugene Joyner. When young Gene Joyner turned 21 years of age in his home state of Kentucky, his dad told him that he had seen an advertisement in the paper for a teaching position in Reynolds, Georgia. The father was persistent. I wrote to them, and they have accepted you. Pack your bag. It was 1909. Sounded like he was kind of pushing the Gene bird out of the nest. Gene got a little nervous when he discovered that it was difficult to find Reynolds on a map. When he finally found it, he was told the railroad could sell him a ticket no further than Fort Valley. But the bird was now out of the nest, and he soon arrived in Fort Valley. When he inquired in Fort Valley about purchasing a ticket to Reynolds, the guy at the station asked him, What you going to do in Reynolds, bub? Mr. Joyner told him he's going there to be a teacher. They shoot teachers in Reynolds, he replied. That's a true story. He did purchase another ticket and made his way to Reynolds. Eugene H. Joyner could not have known that he would spend the rest of his 65 years on earth in Reynolds, Georgia. He was firmly planted. There have been five school buildings in Reynolds since the town began in 1852. Mr. Joyner became principal of Coleman Institute, which was school building number four. He would also take Reynolds students into the beautiful brick building in 1917, which was building number five, after the Coleman building burned to the ground. And in the beautiful new building, he would continue an incredible career as an administrator and teacher who impacted an awful lot of folks in our small town. At one point during World War II, Mr. Joyner counted 61 Reynolds High School graduates, remember this was a very small school, who were serving in the war, including 58 men and three ladies. Incredibly, 21 of them were commissioned officers. In World War I, only two Taylor County men served as officers. At one public affair, Mr. Joyner took the liberty to read every name he was proud and humbled by the fact that he personally taught all 61 of them. During the war, he received letters from his students from every corner of the world. The soldiers would scratch out a short letter to their parents or spouses, but when they wrote to him, it was different. Their handwriting was clear. Paragraphs were meticulously indented. Grammar was always correct, and spelling was unimpeachable. I have seen a list of the honor graduates of Reynolds High School for a 40-year period, from 1909 when Mr. Joyner began until 1949. A high percentage of graduates were honor graduates. Mr. Joyner had very high standards in academics and discipline, and every student knew it. I would suggest the academic standards had something to do with the carefully written letters mailed to him from his former students from who knows where during the war. The high standards also had something to do of the high percentage of students being honor graduates. I have been told he gave only one 100 grade score his entire 50 years as a teacher. He did not give a lot of slack. If Mr. Jorna thought someone was college material, he would guide them to the college he thought would be best for them. 
He actually had his daughter apply to Georgia Tech under a man's name because they did not accept women. She was accepted until they found out she was a female. Maybe he just wanted to prove a point, or maybe he was just a man before his time. I have heard many stories from former students about Mr. Joyner's methods of teaching. For example, he would call on a student with no advance notice to speak contemporaneously on a subject he had assigned in front of the entire school at assembly. In fact, he did that regularly. He would also call a student to the board to work a math problem in front of their peers. When you were in his presence, you had to be ready, period. In real life, you also have to be ready. And you really don't get a lot of slack. Large lessons he was teaching. When Mr. Joyner retired in 1959, the lieutenant governor of Georgia apologized profusely because he could not be there because of a prior important engagement. After all, Mr. Joyner had introduced him at his first speech when he kicked off his campaign for lieutenant governor. That was the least he could do for Garland Byrd, one of his honor graduates of the Reynolds High School class of 1941. Reynolds is a very special place that produced some very special people. Most of those special people who were here during Mr. Joyner's tenure will be quick to tell you, Mr. Joyner may be the biggest reason for that. Contrary to popular opinion, most little towns were also accepting of people who were different. And in many cases, towns like Reynolds were ahead of their time. Reynolds elected its first female mayor in 1952. I repeat that. This little town, this little rural town of Reynolds, elected its first female mayor in 1952. The Kulik family is another good example. This family was a big part of Reynolds for about 30 years. The Kuliks were born in Poland and were Jewish. They escaped Poland to find a better life that problem-ridden Poland did not offer. With nationwide economic troubles, famines, and religious persecution back at home, they fled with hopes of finding prosperity and acceptance in America. Incredibly, they found what they were looking for in Reynolds, Georgia. They were most likely the only citizens of Reynolds who spoke Hebrew, ever. David Kulik began his dry goods business in Reynolds in 1918. He quickly got involved in the community. He was obviously well-liked, and he and his family fit in very well. You'll find his name in the group that joined Brown Marshall to start the Reynolds Golf Course. The Kulik business was a thriving business. David and Sophie Kulik, both born in Poland, had four children, all born in Reynolds. Their first child was Sam. He was born in 1918 and graduated with my dad in the Reynolds High School class of 1935. Both of them left for Emory University after they graduated. At some point, Sammy transferred to Vanderbilt University and got his degree there. 
Sammy was obviously a very good golfer, and he learned to play at the Reynolds Golf Course his daddy helped start. I have read about the golf tournaments he won at the local golf course. He also served in the U.S. Navy for four years during World War II. The Kuliks also had three daughters, Nora, Molly, and Edith. All four of the Kulik children were honor graduates of Reynolds High School and all went on to have wonderful and successful lives in the southeastern United States. The Kulik story is an important part of the Reynolds story. They were living proof that someone can start with nothing and make a great life and overcome whatever obstacles they may encounter. Why they came to Reynolds, we may never know. They were Jewish, and they were from Poland. They spoke Hebrew, and I'm sure very broken English in the beginning. But they were accepted here with open arms, contributed positively to our community, and made a wonderful life. Initially, they were as different as anyone could be from the people of Reynolds. But in spite of that, they found acceptance and prosperity here. Sometimes we look back through nostalgic eyes, and there are times we are embarrassed by what we read happened in the old days. And then there are other times we are very proud, and the lessons are huge and fitting for today. Edith Kulik was the youngest child of David and Sophie. Turned out Edith married a Georgia boy by the name of Herbert Besser. They moved to Montgomery, Alabama, and he started a company called Besser Paper Company. That company later became Best Pack and Company, a manufacturer of plastic freezer bags and wax freezer cartons. The company grew, and then grew some more, and even had a business in Houston, Texas, to market non-food plastic products. Herbert became ill and died in 1975 at the young age of 56. It should be said that the announcement of Herbert Besser's death and his photo was on the front page of the Montgomery newspaper the day after he died. Soon afterwards, Edith, who was a 1946 graduate of the University of Alabama, was appointed chairman of the board of Best Pack. The company in 1975 had 300 employees with an annual payroll of $3 million. I don't know how big it eventually became. Under Edith's leadership, the company began manufacturing biodegradable garbage bags. If they were not the first to do so in the United States, they were one of the first. But I believe they were the first. Edith gave credit to her husband, who was well on his way to developing the product when he died. But she took it across the goal line. They called the product Edith Besser's Disappearing Trash Bag. Edith's picture was on all the boxes of bags sold in grocery stores all over the United States. Forty-four years ago, Edith did not consider herself an avid environmentalist, but she did believe that individuals and businesses should do all they could to protect the environment. This honor graduate of the Reynolds High School class of 1942 was a woman before her time. Dr. Hugh Seeley, a 1948 graduate of Duke University Medical School, was a major force in the medical community in Middle Georgia for many years. He has served as president of the Macon Medical Society, served as chairman of the Macon Bibb County Hospital Authority, and was director of the coronary unit at the Medical Center of Central Georgia for many years. He and another local cardiologist, 
joined together years ago to found the Georgia Heart Center. Dr. Seeley also served as a clinical professor of medicine at Mercer University. Not bad for a country boy who grew up in Reynolds, Georgia, population 1,000. Interestingly, Dr. Seeley had an older brother who also was a medical doctor. Dr. Will Camp Seeley graduated from Emory University Medical School in 1936. This Dr. Seeley served his internship at Duke University and completed the surgical residency program and eventually became a thoracic surgeon and a famous one at that. Dr. Will Camp Seeley, a true international pioneer in thoracic surgery, was featured in Life magazine in 1958 performing hypothermic cardiopulmonary bypass surgery. He also happens to be credited with developing the field of electrophysiology and is known worldwide as the father of arrhythmia surgery. In 1968, this Dr. Seeley performed the first pathway ablation for Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome on the fisherman with a fast pulse, which has been documented in detail internationally in medical journals. Again, not bad for a country boy who grew up in the little town of Reynolds, Georgia. Dr. Will Camp Seeley graduated from Reynolds High School in 1929. Dr. Hugh graduated from Reynolds High School in 1942. Their dad, by the way, was the cashier of the First National Bank of Reynolds. Now you know, when you have a loved one going to get an ablation, remember Dr. Seeley performed the first one. But there's more to the story. Dr. Hugh Seeley's widow, Connie, told me about a biography written about Dr. Will Camp Seeley. I began reading it and I quickly learned about the Seeley connection to Dr. Brian in Reynolds. Here's an excerpt from the book, Will Camp Seeley, Father of Arrhythmia Surgery, by Martin L. Dalton. At, the, at a young age, Will learned the value of a successful work ethic. In his spare time, he worked at one of the general merchandise stores in Reynolds. He also had a successful magazine route for the Saturday Evening Post. In the summertime, when he was not at his grandfather's farm, he made crates for the local peach packing plant. At the age of 12, Will acquired a baby brother, Hugh Key Seeley Jr., on May the 5th, 1925. Although there were no physicians, or for that matter, college graduates in Will's immediate family, he became interested in a career in medicine when he began high school at age 13. At this time, he came under the influence of Sidney Hope Bryan, MD. Dr. Bryan had been born in Reynolds on December 21st, 1884. So he was 28 years older than Will. Dr. Bryan received his undergraduate training at Mercer University in Macon and his MD from Vanderbilt University at age 24. He returned home to Reynolds and began his practice in an office near the present City Hall. He began practice in 1909 as the third physician in Reynolds. When the Seeley family moved to Reynolds in 1914, they selected Dr. Bryan as their family physician. And this led to numerous interchanges of Will Seeley and Dr. Bryant. Eventually, Will would spend time in Dr. Bryant's office and would occasionally go with him making house calls. All of this led an intense interest in going to medical school and even in high school. Will began thinking of going to Emory University School of Medicine once he completed college. This became his abiding 
ambition and one that he would eventually fulfill. At Reynolds High School, as the tallest boy, he played on the basketball first team. It is interesting that the games were played on an outdoor court as there was no gymnasium. He graduated as valedictorian of his class of nine in May 1929. At this time, public school education consisted of only 11 years instead of the now standard 12. Consequently, Will completed his Reynolds education and prepared to go off to college at the tender age of 16. Interestingly, Phillips Bryan, named after his maternal grandmother and oldest son of Dr. Bryan, was close friends with Will Camp Seeley. He graduated from Reynolds High School two years after Will Seeley in 1931. Phil and Will were in medical school together at Emory University. They traveled back and forth together from Atlanta to Reynolds. Dr. Phillips Bryan became a well-known surgeon. This Reynolds High School graduate died in 1998 in Lynchburg, Virginia. Phil Bryan's son and grandson of Dr. S.H. Bryan is also named Phillips Bryan. Phil Jr. became a urologist in Virginia. And another grandson of Dr. Sidney Bryan turned out to be another famous doctor, Jonathan Philpott, who spent his formative years in Reynolds, graduated high school in Chattanooga at the prestigious McCallie High School. He left there to get his college degree in philosophy and history at Hamden Sidney College of Virginia. More school followed at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, where he became an MD in 1992. From there, he headed to Philadelphia to the University of Pennsylvania to become a trauma surgeon, then to Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond to become a cardiothoracic surgeon. Also along the way, after doing every kind of heart surgery imaginable, including heart transplants, Jonathan became a renowned expert in the area, among all things, of electrophysiology, specifically in concomitant atrial fibrillation and heart valve surgery. Absolutely amazing. And one more bit. I also should mention a few other tidbits of information. Martha Bryan Epton, also known as Teeny, and her sister, Vita Bryan McMinn, became registered nurses, both the grandchildren of Dr. Bryan. Teeny, who stayed in the middle Georgia area, became a well-known and excellent nurse, treated most everyone in town and surrounding towns at one point or another at the Peach County Emergency Room, where she worked for many years. And one more bit. Dr. Bryan's great-granddaughter is Hannah Bryan Young. She's been working as a registered nurse in a very busy Atlanta ER for about six years. She recently graduated from the University of Alabama at Birmingham and has been certified as a nurse practitioner specialized in psychiatric and mental health. I'm sure there are more of Dr. Bryan's descendants in the medical field, but I've listed plenty. Dr. Sidney Hope Bryan, who died in 1966, did not get to see all the fruit and eventual results of his investments in the little town of Reynolds, Georgia. Real investors never do. But the influence of this Vanderbilt University-trained country doctor from Reynolds was and continues to be profound. <laughs> There are so many more people I could talk about that came from this little town. 
Maybe during the course of this podcast and other episodes, I will do so. We should never underestimate the power of small-town America. There has no doubt been many people who could not wait to leave their little town to move to the big city to make a life. That sure has been true about rentals, and that is perfectly fine. In most cases, the world is better because they did. I'm also sure there have been a good number of people who could not wait to leave the big city to find the little town where everyone knows your name. For sure, there are advantages to both. As we all know, and for many reasons, little towns like Reynolds that I have just described are fewer and fewer in number. In my view, our country is not better because of it. We certainly cannot turn back the clock. But maybe there's a way we can learn a little from history and from the lessons that were taught there. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.